everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. It's raining here again, which is weird and wonderful for our sunny city over here. And I hope that wherever you are is weird and or wonderful for you today, too. And first, the news. So as many of you may know already, I'm going to be leaving soon for three whole months, which is a long time to leave your baby. And this place is kind of my baby. Uh, they're sending me off to a monastery in Japan to get myself trained up proper and go pay my respects to the tradition, which is exciting and a little nerve-wracking. If you want to hear more about that, I gave some thoughts on it and what felt at the time like a mildly unhinged talk back in February called How to Stop Time. Felt kind of weird about that one, but I want to let y'all know what's going on and what it means to me anyway. But for now, the point is first, so many of you have done a lot to support this whole thing and make sure that trip and hiatus could happen, whether it was sending in money or volunteering to help cover things while I'm gone, or just sending in your thoughts and encouragement on the whole idea. So huge thank you for that. It really feels like a community effort. That's like everything I ever hoped to be a part of. So seriously, it means the world. But also, yes, usually I do do a lot of the background work around here, but the great news is we have people who have stepped up to make sure there will still be podcasts and social media while I'm gone, and sits, and koan nights, and everything else we normally do. So coming up on the podcast, we've got some real gems for you. We went back through and found the best of the unreleased talks from the last few years, got them all loaded up and ready for you to release while I'm gone, including actually three of my favorite talks ever given here will be coming out. Helena Harvelix gave a few talks over the pandemic that were just hilarious and moving. And like if David Sedaris was a zenny who knew how to drop a little dogan in with his wit and wisdom. So I'm very excited you finally get to hear this. You got some others from me we didn't get to release before, along with some great ones from Sarah, some of Jason's Diamond Sutra series, Emily with a great dive in the Dogen's instructions to the cook, and so much more. So the real point is, so much to look forward to, and I'll miss y'all, but I hope you enjoy. And if you get a chance while I'm gone, do stop on by one of the sit-in discussions or a koan night in Zoom or in person and show your love and support for the crew that will be running it and have a good Zen time at the same time. You can always email us at the website for the Zoom info. But it's just been really inspiring to see everyone take things over. It does feel like leaving your baby to be going away, but also it feels a little like watching your baby learn to fly at the same time. Also, if you'd like to help support us, you can go over to aczc.org slash donate to make a one-time donation, or even better, become a recurring member at whatever level you can afford. We are 100% donor-supported, so thanks only to you, we're still here. If you cannot afford to donate, that's great. Thank you so much for being here and taking part in our little sangha. And okay, enough about all that. Here is me with a deep dive into not much, a walking tour of emptiness in Buddhism. Here is the theory of nothing. Well, hi, everybody. Tonight, I was going to do something kind of nerdy. I wanted to do a deep dive into emptiness because, well, Sarah mentioned it in a talk a couple weeks ago. It was great and briefly asked me if the word boundlessness could work for emptiness. This is my response to that one little question in 40 minutes or less. And also, it is a critical thing that I do think gets misunderstood a lot or I don't know if it gets misunderstood. Well, it always does. Yeah, because if you look throughout history, it's been talked about in many contradictory ways. And so I see a lot of people saying they don't understand it or is it even the right word? A lot of people wonder if like emptiness is the right word for what Buddha was talking about. And there's a lot of attempts to try to soften a little bit and be like, well, maybe it maybe it didn't really mean emptiness. Maybe it just means like a lack of something in particular or boundlessness of something or openness. I've heard people try to do these kinds of things. And yeah, throughout history, it's been talked about in many contradictory ways from all the authoritative sources. 
And even I've met in Theravadan people who will, that's another school of Buddhism, who will say that, you know, Zen's take on emptiness is completely wrong, that Buddha never said any of that kind of stuff, and we've kind of made a whole thing up in the last thousand or two years. So that'd be worth going into, because I'm actually always curious, too. Like, personally, I'm okay with that. That's kind of Mahayana's take is like, cool, what we're doing this now. We're not fundamentalists about it. But I haven't really read the early Buddhist sutras on that, and I was like, well, let me look into it. And I am kind of curious if Zen is still teaching what Buddha taught and what did Buddha teach. And there's always like the twists and turns of history. So I'm going to take you on a little like historical journey through emptiness. It sounded fun to me. I don't know. We'll see if you guys think it's fun too. So let's just start because there's a lot here. So just to start, is the word emptiness an accurate word for what Buddha was talking about? I always like to make sure that first. So the word that in, in Pali, I think it's Pali or Sanskrit. I'm so sorry. <laughs> is sunyata. And it's a compound word, sunya. And this, this is just from the Wiktionary definition of the word sunya in Sanskrit. And as a noun, it means zero. As an adjective, it means blank, deserted, empty, void, destitute of. It comes from the word cow, which is related to the Latin word cavus, hollow, cavity. So, yeah. Yeah, no, he said emptiness. <laughs> he said, not a zip, zilch, nothing, <laughs> nothing there. Uh, and ta is just the suffix meaning ness. So yes, emptiness would be a very accurate translation of that word. So I kind of assumed that, but I wanted to start with that because a lot of Buddhism happens like this. So like Four Noble Truths, right? The first noble truth, all life is suffering. And then again, everybody wants to be like, did we translate suffering right? Like, I don't know if Buddha would have said, that's kind of rough, you know? And you look back, like the word suffering is the word dukkha, which is just, it sounds like dukkha, which is awesome. But also <laughs> it's the opposite of the word sukha, which means sweetness. So yeah, it's like life sucks, basically. He's, some version of life sucks, life is bitter, life is unpleasant, life is suffering. It's a fine translation. But I, I always feel like the fact that we want to first argue with the words is kind of like the stages of grief. Like first thing is now like, no, 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 that's not what he meant. And I always want to give Buddha his credit, like, Obviously, or whoever wrote it down, obviously it stuck for a reason. And the fact that it's still upsetting people 2,500 years later tells me, like, that's a good, that's a good lesson, right? Because if it really just made no sense, we'd just not even worry about it, right? But if somebody says all life is suffering and you're like, no, you kind of believe it, right? That's the first thing that's happening. And so when somebody says the truth of, all, of, of you and the world is everything is empty and you're like, no, like, again... I think Buddha knew what he was doing with his word choice. He's being provocative on purpose. I think for, for a reason, it also kind of demonstrates what it's trying to do. And so my question is always on, what are you clinging on to that makes that word sound challenging? I always, like, I check myself on this, right? So if the word emptiness strikes me, as like too much that day. I don't want to see this as empty. No, this, this feels real. Like, especially I think like love is the last thing we really want to cling to. You know, love seems like that. that's a good thing. That's a real thing. It's like, what are you, what are you hanging on to? You know, it's always worth looking to that. So that's what emptiness means. So moving on, the main sutra that, he, that we have on emptiness, which is the Sunyata Sutta, it's the short, well, there's a short one and a long one. And the short one, it opens with Ananda basically being incredulous too. Here's Ananda's quote. He says, on one occasion, he's talking to the Buddha. He said, on one occasion, the blessed one, that's Buddha who he's talking to, was staying among the Sakyans in a Sakyan town named Nagaraka. There, face to face with the blessed one, I heard this face to face. I learned this. I now remain fully in the dwelling of emptiness. Did I hear that correctly? Learn it correctly? Attend to it correctly? Remember it correctly? Basically, wait, Buddha, did you really say <laughs> that I dwell in emptiness? And Nanda can't believe it either. And so Buddha says, yes. And then he goes on to lay it out as 
stages of awareness and meditation. So I'm going to talk you through those so you can see what he was doing. Because remember, one thing that Buddha was always, and one reason we get tripped up nowadays, is even though occasionally Buddha did give us like metaphysical, cosmological truth kind of stuff, he did it very rarely, and those are a bunch of caveats. And mostly what he said was, don't worry about ultimate metaphysical existential truths. I'm only teaching you suffering and the end of suffering. That's all he would ever teach. So if Buddha's going to teach, are, is it, are things empty? Is emptiness a thing? He's probably going to be doing it as a functional teaching tool. And so that's what this is. He's going to teach emptiness as stages of meditation. So he just starts talking about, so a monk not attending to the perception of village, not attending to the perception of human being, attends to the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. I guess he's assuming we're sitting in the woods. We're not, but house. Perhaps of house. <laughs> His mind takes pleasure, finds satisfaction, settles, and indulges in the perception of wilderness or house. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of the village are not present. Whatever disturbances that would exist based on the perception of human being are not present. There is only this non-emptiness, the singleness based on the perception of wilderness. Thus he regards it as the empty of whatever is not there. So, it's old Pali Buddhists to say... When you're sitting, whatever happens, you're aware of it. And when you're aware of it, the idea of it and the conception of it will kind of dissipate. So if you're a monk in a, in a, in a wilderness, you notice the village, notice the trees, notice yourself. And when you notice them, it's kind of, I always think that the idea is like, you say a word over and over again until it loses all meaning, just say one word repeatedly. Same thing with your experience of reality. You just notice one thing repeatedly until eventually it's like, wait, what was that? And then it kind of like falls away. So also what you're noticing is just your perception of the thing itself. In Zen, you'll hear a lot of people say the corollary to emptiness is thusness. It's a silly word. It just, it just means the word this. But they make this, this like vaulted concept of like, no, 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 just this is like, that's the ultimate reality of everything is just this. And that's always like everything is empty because it is nothing but this, non, non-conceptual. He's doing the same thing. What you're going to do in meditation, you're going to focus on one thing until it's nothing but that one thing, and then it's nothing in particular, and then so you call it empty. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. I don't know. That's the theory. <laughs> anyway, he does it for Earth, and then he's going to keep taking it to more things. I'm not going to read it to you because it's just, he's just going to repeat that. It's, it's the Pali canon. It's just very repetitive. But he does that same formula with the perception of Earth, and then after you've seen the Earth and let go of the Earth, then you let go of empty space, and then you just find your consciousness. When you let go of your consciousness, you find nothingness. Not done yet. <laughs> when you let go of nothingness, you find a famous phrase that's called neither perception nor non-perception. I like that phrase and I hate it because it, it sounds like gobbledygook. But what it is is you not trying to perceive nothingness anymore. When you've kind of let go of yourself, you've let go of your ideas of things. And then whatever is witnessing that whole process happening, you stop doing that too. That's nothing. When that kind of like settles in, are you there? Are you not? Are you noticing nothingness or not? You know, you can start to like let go more and more and more. That's that one. And then finally get to the themeless concentration. That's the last one. And then you come to release is the final one. And release would be for Buddha, full enlightenment, liberation, nirvana. You've made it. It's the end of the, the end of the line. And so I, I got that one for you. Here's how he describes release. When you've let go of everything else, all that's left. 
He discerns that this themeless concentration of awareness is fabricated and mentally fashioned. And he discerns that whatever is fabricated and mentally fashioned is, is inconstant and subject to cessation. For him, thus knowing, thus seeing, the mind is released from the affluent of sensuality, the affluent of becoming, the affluent of ignorance. With release, there is the knowledge released. He discerns that birth is ended, the holy life is fulfilled, the task done, there's nothing further for this world. And there is just this non-emptiness that connected with the six sensory spheres dependent on this very body with life as its condition. Thus, he regards it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, he discerns is present, there is this. And so this, his entry into emptiness, accords with actuality, is undistorted in meaning, pure, superior, and unsurpassed. There you go. So there's a couple things in there. One of the things I've heard in Zen a lot is they always say this is a subtractive process. You're not trying to learn things. You're not trying to understand things. You're not trying to gain anything. You're not trying to gain something better. You're just constantly seeing things and letting them go, seeing things and letting them go. And what the Zen people say that we'll see, and I think he just said it too, when you've let go of everything else, what's left, which is nothing, is pure and perfect. That's kind of the whole Buddhist idea. And but what he's what Buddha's doing in his time and place is that his big thing, and you can like this or not, is not actually a Zen thing anymore. We would never say this like this, but is dispassion. So he's not trying to teach you the truth of the world. Like if you let go of all this meditation and see this emptiness state like beyond release, we're not saying the universe is actually devoid of anything. You're experiencing the full letting go of yourself, which would then be called nirvana through what Buddha always said was dispassion. He wants you to let go of all of your passions, all of your desires, your everything you cling to, in a sense that we would probably consider ascetic. That's what he's trying to get you to do. So if you meditate on reality long enough and see it's unreality, he's hoping you're going to get disenchanted with it. If you see it dissipate, why would you run after things and stuff and experiences? That's his goal. You don't have to like his goal, but that's what that <laughs> that's what he taught it for. So that's a step-by-step -step journey through emptying of aspects of self and reality. And I've seen some of these things in Zen like that too. But what we're doing here, so the practice that we just did and the way we just explained it, the Shikantaza, where there is no focus, like we would never teach you to go through these kind of states. And I've even asked teachers about it and they'll, like, they'll yell at you and get very stern on you if you try and tell them you're doing this. But the whole idea in Zen is that your practice of just sitting there without a goal and without a certain concentration practice, that with, without a, a structure and an end goal, that's an embodiment of what emptiness means, is that you're already doing the thing that we're talking about. He's trying to get you to see everything is not worth chasing after, and we're trying to get you to sit down and not chase after things, <laughs> including the attainment and the realization of emptiness. It's one of the biggest, oldest conundrums in Buddhism is how do you get somebody to realize emptiness? You don't do it by understanding emptiness. You know, we, we, you do it by sitting down and not trying to do something else for a half hour of your life. Very hard for a human to do. And so I kind of came up with this little formulation today. This is, this is a Dave theory. There are kind of three things that you can, that you can do with stuff like this. I feel like the first one is you can learn it. So what I'm doing right now for you is like just the base level useless thing one can do, which is to give you the concept and the history of, of emptiness and why and how it's used. You know, you can know it in your brain. Neat. It's not harmful unless you get really excited about it and think you know something. And it can even be helpful. It can point away, but it's not the thing. After that, I think they usually want you to, I think other forms of Zen focus on this much more than we do. There's realizing it. 
So emptiness as a truth in your life. It can be something like in meditation, being like really like letting things go and having recognition like, oh, release, you know? Or like, oh, that was nothing. You know, you have to come back to it because you're just like, you know. But um, <laughs> that's the whole joke. That, that sitting with nothing thing takes quite a few runs at it. Because you first do it like, oh, I did nothing. I sat nothing. And like, you're right back there. It's not a problem. <laughs> just see it and keep going. And as, as Lori said, you, you get used to it. Eventually you stop getting excited. Then you can sit in nothing for a while once you stop being so impressed with yourself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it takes a while. Anyway, so realizing can be something you can happen in meditation. You can kind of like understand it in your day. So this thing that you've learned today, you might see how like, oh, yeah, this does help. I can see my attachments I was clinging to. I can see how that's suffering. I can see how I'm conceptualizing things and that's not really true. I can see that my societal expectations were something that were implanted in me and not as intrinsic as I thought they were. My core beliefs were all things that come from my past and conditioning. You know, you might notice these things as realizations that feel like letting go of something. That's more like a real realization. That's like a much more useful thing than knowing. That's what the knowing is for to point you there. And then there is embodying. <laughs> I'm adding this one because I spent a long time in the Zen world. There's a lot of people who can talk you through some very deep realizations and some very profound wisdoms who don't seem to walk the walk. And what I have noticed, what I always tell you guys over and over here is that in this group in particular, the way we tend to do things, I see a lot of people who walk the walk but don't seem to have any realization that's what they're doing. A lot of people saying they don't understand what's going on while they perfectly embody these kind of truths. And so in Soto Zen, that embodiment is much more what we focus on. Instead of taking you through directed meditations that are designed to realize you into emptiness, or instead of doing koan curriculums that are designed to like force you into awareness of emptiness, we just have you sit down and embody it. And I'm pretty sure that seeps through into your lives and you all walk around acting out what's actually good about this stuff. But your brain's not going to, has no idea that's happening, which is that's a great, it's actually going to help. It's going to help you to embody it faster to not get your brain in the way, would be the Zen theory, which is why we do that. All that brain stuff just takes you further away from it. The only problem is people come here and say, they don't get it, and then I worry they're not going to come back. <laughs> but I promise you it's working. <laughs> so that's, my, that's, my, that's my, my, my little theory. The knowing, realizing, and embodying, and my value, and I think the values of this place are much more about embodying than the other two. Anyway... One more old Buddha Sutta. So I, I just like this little poem. This is from the Foam Sutta. I didn't know there was a Foam Sutta, but this is the poem at the end of the Foam Sutta. Form is like a glob of foam, feeling, a bubble, perception, a mirage, fabrications, a banana tree. I don't know why it's banana tree. Consciousness, a magic trick. This has been taught by the kinsmen of the sun. However you observe them, appropriately examine them, they're empty, void to whoever sees them appropriately. Beginning with the body is taught by the one with profound discernment. When abandoned by three things, life, warmth, and consciousness, form is rejected, cast aside. When bereft of these, it lies thrown away, senseless, a meal for others. That's the way it goes. It's a magic trick, an idiot's babbling. It is said to be a murderer. No substance here is found. Thus a monk, persistence aroused, should view the aggregates by day and by night. Mindful, alert, discard all fetters should make himself his own refuge, should live as if his head were on fire in hopes of the state with no falling away. I read that for a couple of reasons. A, there's a few old Zen quotes. We're going to see like the Diamond Sutra. There's a very famous quote in there that I thought was from there, but it seems like they kind of cribbed it from that first, uh, like a glob of foam, feeling a bubble, a mirage. It's a very poetic passage that they kind of lifted from there, I see now. And also you always hear practice like your head's on fire. That's a big Zen thing. 
that's where it came from. Who knew? Found that today. I got excited. There you go. <laughs> More importantly about that one. So like I said, I don't think Buddha's big on metaphysical truths. But what he, I think he's giving away the game. What he is saying is, this is the view. Like, right view is part of our practice. If you want to do Buddha's Eightfold Path there, right view is one of the things to do. And so he's telling you the view. Don't cling to anything. Dispassion. Don't take any, not taking anything substantially real. So if you were to ask me, is anything substantially real? Is emptiness the truth of what the universe is? I might as well say, yeah, right? Because what we're saying is it's the most helpful outlook. If you're going to have a narrative for the world, sure, take that one. No narratives are accurate, but that's the one that's going to lead you the quickest to liberation <laughs> would be what Buddhism would say. So there I think he's saying, that's the view you want. All right. Oh, other theory for understanding Buddhism, according to me, and these are my theories, is that, oh, context is always key. That's why I keep saying, so know what Buddha was trying to do, and his words make a lot more sense. And if things look contradictory later, it makes sense in context. So Buddha was very committed to um, no metaphysical views and to training people to direct liberation in his terms through dispassion in their lifetimes. And so that's why he taught emptiness as a thing, non-attachment to anything. All right, so, so moving on through history, we're going to remember there's always context to everything. I think it makes all this stuff much less confusing when you realize people were saying whatever was useful to them at that moment. Because <laughs> the nice thing about a teaching of emptiness is that, and this is why people complain about Zen, if you're not committed, if you're, if you're committed to the fact that all beliefs are contingent and not ultimately real, you're kind of free to say whatever you want to in the moment without the need to feel consistent or non-hypocritical because, you know, you're just saying whatever's a skillful me, whatever's right at that time. So that's why these things can change over time and we're not going to consider it a problem. All right, a couple hundred years later, we have the Prajnaparamita Sutras, which are the foundation of Mahayana Buddhism, which Zen is an offshoot of. They had a much bigger focus on emptiness, famously. The Heart Sutra, which we chant here on Friday mornings, the Diamond Sutra, which Jason is doing a great series on. These two things are seen as kind of extraordinary in religious history because Heart Sutra especially, it just takes all of early Buddhist teachings and just in quick one-page succession negates every single one of them. And it just says, not that, not that. So there's like the five skandhas are the con Buddhist conception for what makes up the self. And it just goes like, yeah, no senses, no perception, no consciousness. None of that is ultimately real. And so it's kind of extraordinary to base a religion on the negating of your entire religion. <laughs> it's kind of why I'm here. The Diamond Sutra is a much longer version of the Heart Sutra in a way. It negates everything, especially Buddhist teachings. My favorite lines in there are when Sabuti, his best disciple, is questioning the Buddha. And Buddha keeps grilling him. He's like, if anybody tells you that they have anything to teach, they are not a true Buddhist teacher. You know, if anybody tells you that they've got enlightened, they have no idea what enlightenment is. You know, that's like he's just going through everything and being like, none of these things hold up. And that's where um, we start to lose the Theravadan people. So like, we didn't say that. I don't know, because it starts to sound a lot more metaphysical here. Here's the flavor of the Diamond Sutra. This is the very end of the Diamond Sutra. He says, if a noble son or daughter grasped but a single four-line gatha of this teaching, the perfection of wisdom and memorized, discussed, recited, mastered, and explained in detail to others, the body of merit produced by that noble son or daughter as a result would be immeasurably, infinitely greater. And how should they explain it? By not explaining. Thus it is called explaining. That's very Diamond Sutra-y. <laughs> and then the famous poem, as a lamp, a cataract, a star in space, an illusion, a dewdrop, a bubble, a dream, a cloud, a flash of lightning, view all created things like this. Now we know that's kind of a quote. But neat. 
So that's the Diamond Sutra. That's the Prajnaparamita Sutras. I do think it's similar to what Buddha was saying. But so here's the context. I'm not surprised that Theravada and early Buddhist monks would find this objectionable because I think they were supposed to. <laughs> Mahayana Buddhism grew up like 200 or 300 years after Buddha lived. And what I've noticed is that it's a time when, for the first time in history, Buddhist monks had gained kind of court prestige and patronage, and they were put up in fancy monasteries, and they became the official state religion of India. And all of a sudden, being enlightened meant something. It meant you had fancy robes, and you had a nice room and a nice monastery, probably some political power, and you're walking around talk about how enlightened you were. I think a bunch of people saw this from the like, really, you know? And so then you have this kind of like reactionary Buddhism, which is, looks like Mahayana, where... They invent the character of the Bodhisattva, and the Bodhisattva is the one who's, like, humble enough to never say they're enlightened, to be, like, if I was, if I really cared about people, if I was truly compassionate, I would forswear my own, because remember, nirvana means you get off the wheel, you never come back here, um, you don't get reborn, so a true Bodhisattva would stick around and help the rest of you out, like, okay, I'll figure my stuff out, but I'm not going to get off the wheel entirely, I'm going to stick around and hang out with you. I see a kind of like intra-Buddhist political statement in that, being like the real, the real compassion isn't to walk around like you're somebody special claiming that you're enlightened. That seems a little silly. I think we can all kind of see this irony. And so when they're negating early Buddhist teachings, what they're saying is that, I think it's a little bit of like a, a populist thing to it, you know, an anti, anti-elitist thing. Understanding your complex network of teachings. So by this time, the Buddhist teachings got really, this whole complicated network, you needed a whole degree to understand what they were saying and how to unpack it. And so when you negate that, you're saying, yeah, that's not enough. Your education and your theoretical knowledge, like I'm giving you here, that's not enough. That's not the real thing. Walk the walk. And so the Bodhisattva was the ideal of walking the walk. You know, mastering all of those teachings in the Heart Sutra and then telling yourself that that's not anything special. That's walking the walk. I think that's the biggest misnomer in modern Zen is that we read these ancient things and we think like, oh, okay, we don't need the teachings. The teachings aren't important. They don't, they're fundamentally empty. And the idea was always learn them and don't get excited about them. <laughs> that's why we're doing this talk. Okay. So I'm going to go through the next bit quickly because I want to get to the end, but the end bit's good. Things you should know if anybody ever asks about emptiness. Nagarjuna is the poster boy of emptiness. You'll hear about him a lot. He wrote a book called the, I'm not going to try to say it, the MMK. <laughs> he wrote the MMK. The MMK is hilarious if you're really into 200-page, very dry, nerdy jokes. But the joke is that he just disproves step-by-step step all of existence and reality. He just, like, everything you can throw at him, he just, like, he can, he can prove to you completely that whatever you just said exists does not exist. And by the end, it's just kind of, it's, it's kind of funny. But really, he wasn't saying anything different than Buddha. He was saying let go of views, and also that the fundamental ignorance is that you exist. So Prajnaparamita means perfect wisdom, and to him, the ignorance is that you exist as a person and as a self, an individual, and so if you get rid of ignorance, everything else kind of crumbles after that. If you don't see a self, there's no one to suffer. So the perfect wisdom is to get rid of the fundamental ignorance that you exist. Do that, and everything's fine, was his idea. (laughs) Not too hard, right? (laughs) But, so his context, this is where a lot of Buddhism comes from, too. He was, Nagarjuna worked at a university. Nalanda was a Buddhist university. And in India, the debate culture was really intense. Winning a debate, like a a philosophical debate in those courts, could get you great jobs and prestige, or it could get you banished if you lose. You could even lose your life in some of these debates. If you lost a philosophical debate, you could lose your life as a representative of that idea. 
And so Nagarjuna's book is incredibly tight. Like there's not a flaw in his logic. It's not fun to read, but um, he, he's taking emptiness as a position where you can't beat him in debate because he's playing, he's playing Socrates. He doesn't believe in anything, therefore he can pick apart whatever you believe, and that's his whole, that's his whole game. And that's kind of what came down to us, but that's where I see what happened in Buddhism over the years was that this original idea of emptiness being the foundation, it allowed it to do something that most religions or most schools of thought I've seen can't do, which it's always flexible, flexible and dynamic. Since it's based on nothing as its fundamental tenet and says that all tenets are inherently problematic, then it can always adapt to whatever it needs to be in the next time or place in the next culture. You know, It's teaching you not to be fixed to any one thing, which is how the world really works. That's my metaphysical reality is that things are always changing. And anytime I think I'm right, the world moves on in the next 10 minutes. I'm usually stuck there and usually get myself into trouble. And so this no fixed views thing is all it's really doing, which I think led to real flexibility over time. Uh, I'm going to read you a koan from later from Chinese Zen, which I think gets at how it kind of advanced. Because the joke later became, yes, you can disprove anything, but when this got to China, they got clever about it because the hearts you just said it, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, which again sounds philosophical. But the joke is that you get stuck on emptiness, that's not real anymore either. And that you want to, as Zen later put it, not ignore cause and effect. Like, so if you realize emptiness, then you can see that all things are kind of illusory. You don't need to cling to them. You don't need to believe them. But also you all are here. And I need to like pay attention to that. If I miss that, I miss everything. And so Zen got pretty good at being funny about that, that um, you can't say yes and you can't say no. So here's one of my favorite koans about that. Shigong, who later becomes Zen master Huizong of Fu region, asks his younger Dharma brother Zhitong, who later becomes Zen master Zhizhong, do you know how to grasp space? Oh, so a Chinese, the word for space is the word for emptiness. They are just the same word at this point. Do you know how to grasp space? And Zhitong said, yes, I do. Zhigong said, how do you grasp it? And Zhitong stroked the air with his hand. And Zhigong said, you don't know how to grasp space? And Zhitong responded, how do you grasp it, elder brother? And Qigong poked his finger in Zhitong's nostril and yanked his nose. Zhitong grunted in pain and said, you're killing me. You tried to pull off my nose. And Qigong said, you can grasp it now. There you go. That's how Zen does emptiness. <laughs> That's the good version. They do kind of boring versions where they tell you how to meditate. That's the funny version. This is when it all gets funny because there's that joke where you can't deny reality and you also can't believe reality. Same thing with your version of a self. You can't deny yourself but you also can't take yourself seriously. So what do you do? Apparently, this kind of crap. <laughs> this is Dogen responding to that. Let me respond to Shigong. You grasped Zhitong's nose. If this was to grasp space, you should have grasped your own nose. You should have grasped your own finger with a finger. You should have some understanding of grasping space. This is Dogen, founder of our school, criticizing that guy who got it right, supposedly. Even if you have a good finger to grasp space, you should penetrate the inside and outside of space. You should kill space and give life to space. You should know the weight of space. You should trust that the Buddha ancestors' endeavor of the way and aspiration, practice enlightenment through challenging dialogues is no other than grasping space. Emptiness grabbing emptiness. Hopefully, your brains are giving up and letting go, and this is funny. <laughs> if it's not funny, <laughs> give up a little. <laughs> That's what I suggest. Okay, uh, I also put that because technique part two 
Dogen says, look to yourself first. The technique in Shikantaza and in Zen is you don't deny things as you encounter them. If you fully know them, they fall away on their own. It's the same thing with yourself. You don't try to deny yourself and be like, oh, I'm so not me. I'm so empty. I don't have any wishes or wants or desires. The idea is you fully get to know everything about you and just be really honest with it. Like, I'm trying to smoke less right now and it's not fun. I like smoking. But I've done this many times. I know how cravings work. The cravings are that if I try to say, I don't need a cigarette, I'm fine, I'll be smoking in 30 seconds every single time. If I just like fully go in on experience of craving, you're like, yeah, man, I'm having a craving. This sucks. If I talk to anybody right now, I'm probably going to yell at them, so I probably shouldn't talk to anybody. And if I just acknowledge all of that and then it passes on its own, that's how we deal with emptiness. So that's my more present example. <laughs> Shinrin Suzuki had a nice way of putting it. He said, when you study Buddhism, you should have a general house clean of your mind. You must take everything out of your room and clean it thoroughly. If it is necessary, you may bring in everything back in again. You may want many things, so one by one you can bring them back. But if they are not necessary, there is no need to keep them. That's kind of the idea, is that every aspect of yourself you find, you take it out, you look at it, and if you don't need it, you throw it away. Same thing with ideas and concepts. You got a lot of them, and it's worth taking a hard, honest look at them. So, I guess my hot take on the whole thing, if you want it, is that it doesn't seem like it's supposed to be an existential truth. You don't need to believe in it. I think it's a technique. And I, I think that's the best way to understand it, is that to realize that, well, people always used it throughout history as a term to, I think, be playful and flexible with what was going on. And that is a superpower. And I think that's the rarity, and I think that's why I've clung so hard to this tradition. You know, I didn't grow up in Zen. Like, I just kind of came to it on my own later, because it was the only, to me, it's like the only one that's like really being that honest with everything. By saying the end goal isn't there, it's provisional and kind of a joke. We'll tell it to people if they need it, but like, don't believe us when we tell you there's an end goal. And that, yeah, always be flexible. And believe everything you encounter entirely. Take it completely seriously, but don't believe it existentially. Don't cling to it that can get you through a lot. Like when, when things are bad, you know, it helps me to not seize on it anymore as like proof that everything is bad. That helps with things like depression. I think usually bad things would happen and be like, oh, see, I knew everything is terrible. And you see like a whole world, this lens of terrible. And this has taught me that like, okay, that lens is something that I made up. So when something terrible happens, like, oh, look, I'm doing the lens thing. And that like takes away the lens's whole power to do that to you. But the trade-off, and this is why nobody likes this, is why we're all stuck getting depressed still, is that when something good happens, you have to be like, oh, this is putting the rose tin glasses on. That's not as great either, you know? Which is why Buddha got in some dispassion. The Bodhisattva ideal was that if you can really master this, then you can float in and out of things. You wouldn't enjoy things the way you used to, right? So you don't enjoy a steak dinner on behalf of yourself. You'd enjoy the right dinner on behalf of all living beings. That all things that happen are, all good things that happen to you are a good thing for everybody if you're paying attention. If you're not, you're going to make some mistakes. <laughs> That's the idea. I don't know. Whatever done. Letting go is being here. And being here is letting go. I don't know what that means anymore. Anyway, I've talked too long. That's all I got. That's my deep dive on emptiness. <laughs> so is emptiness and boundlessness the same thing? <laughs> I actually have no answer. I should have, I should have thought of that. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. <laughs> no problem. I bow. <laughs>
my question is, you spoke a little bit about getting excited when you think you figured out the truth and then that being a deterrent to knowing more about the truth. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, that's like Zen's whole thing. They say that the, the hardest time for people is after somebody's first, after an enlightenment experience can be the worst time for somebody's practice because you get stuck in this thing that just happened and you want to recreate it forever and it's never going to happen again. And I see this happen with so many things that we all kind of do in life. You can never bring back that last thing that happened. I think that's pretty universal truth. And so, yeah, it's just a warning. And now, I don't know, I get a, in this song too, I think you guys are too good at Zen sometimes. I see you guys do it in advance. Like when people like having like, I see some people make like actual kind of like breakthroughs and get some new good ideas and stuff. And you all look apologetic when you first report on it. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> that's, that's actually, that is falling into, that is the other, the flip side, the falling into nihilism. If you have an epiphany, you're like, holy shit, I just learned something from Buddhism, you know? Awesome. Let that be what it was. And then tomorrow, what's happening now? But like, let each thing be its thing. That's actual freedom. I do feel bad when, well, actually, I'm kind of proud on the Sangha for pooping on this stuff. I don't, I don't know. A lot of Sanghas are egotistical. <laughs> a lot of Zen practitioners can get pretty egotistical about their breakthroughs and whatnot and how, how great it makes them and how wise they are. And they're, they're half right, but as soon as you say it, you're half wrong. And this song is so good at pooping on themselves. I'm like, oh, look at us being so humble. But also, you don't have to poop on yourselves. <laughs> you're great. You're beautiful people. <laughs> My question is this whole idea of like, having those aha moments of epiphany and then just kind of moving on to the next thing. Are we like trying to unrealize things if we like bring it into the forefront and then just pass it on? Is that what we're trying to do? Unrealize something that's not real? Well, to lay out all the cards, yes, but then something else happens. The part that I skipped was the Yogacara stuff where the kind of theoretical idea of it, but in practice, so what Ellison, my older teacher used to tell me was that Zen is a subtractive process. And so you let go of things more and more and more. And it can feel kind of annoying. It can be frustrating. It can just be a thing you do. You can be like, they told me to let go, so I will. It can be a little bit enlightening along the way. Be like, oh, I don't need that. You know, especially some ideas you've been given, some, some things. There can be some things that you want to cling to. You find that you like about yourself. I'm like, I don't want to let go of that. Some things that you don't like about yourself. are like, I can't let go of that. You know, too much guilt and shame. All that kind of stuff can happen. But eventually... Over time, everything just kind of starts to fall away. But in the yoga char, where they got stuck was that eventually you do come to a point where there's nothing else that you can really drop. And at that moment, it can be pretty cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can feel pretty light. You might feel like, holy shit, I'm a newborn baby. And I didn't know that I could feel, I, I didn't know what freedom was until that I found the bottom. And it, so the, the tricky part about that is it's based on you kind of having let go of everything and kind of being clean. But that moment becomes a memory, a glorious memory, which you're gonna then try to recreate over, over time. And so it's just better, it's unnecessary and better out of the corner of your eye because like I said about, it actually doesn't help you walk. In my experience with humans, it doesn't help people walk the walk. I've known a lot of humans, a lot of people can describe this experience very, um, you know, believably. And they can be real jerks. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of people who um, haven't, who are much better at embodying the idea of it. 
So what I was actually told the other week by Gyoke was, be careful, don't do Rin in Rinzai Zen, they try to push you towards it. In Soto Zen, we actively tried, we actively don't. He was saying, do whatever you want to. He's exactly this, because he, he, Gyoke is my teacher, who's our supporting teacher. We're very, very careful. He's not the head teacher of ACZC because he doesn't want to tell us what we should be doing. We already have kind of our own tradition. But so he phrased it very carefully. He's like, in your own sangha, say whatever they need to hear. But just so you know, in the wider world, in Soto Zen, we never promote or talk about that. Just pretend it doesn't even exist. Not a thing. So that's the official line. <laughs> Something you said at the end of the talk really struck me. And I was wondering if you talk more about it, which is the, you know, the steak dinner idea of the you you enjoy it a certain way and then once you have certain experiences and um and emptiness and you can enjoy it but it's in a different way because what is good for you is good for everyone else that seemed really true to me but i can't really understand why <laughs> the quick theory version is that so one other way to understand emptiness is that all things are interdependent nothing exists in by itself and therefore you can't say it's any one thing so you're not actually separable from this room right now. You only exist in this room. So is it you? Is it the room? What is what? Let's just call it because we can't put anything down. Mm -hmm. My experience of that was one time with my, my old house, I had figured out that I could make a beer float. I was like, wait, I can make a beer float. And I had some amaretto and I had a, a milk stout beer and I had some ice cream. I was like, there's no one here. I don't have parents. My, my wife at the time, she was out of town. I was like, fuck this, I'm making a beer float. And I did, and it was amazing. I was so excited and it was very innocent fun, right? I was one, I didn't get drunk on this. I didn't do any harm. And I was like, oh, I get it. This is really, this really, it really did feel like I'm half all living beings. Like, I dedicate this to you and I ate it myself. I didn't share it, that's part's true, but it was such like an innocently wholesome fulfillment that didn't take too much, didn't ask too much. I could, I could feel on a deep level it caused no harm in that moment or no more than is possible. All it did was like brighten my day. So when I talk to the next person, I brighten their day. You know what I mean? Like this kind of thing, what goes, what goes around comes around. If you really find your fulfillment and what really makes you happy without hurting other people and also without hurting yourself, a lot of things we think make us happy are a lot of clean. Like if I didn't get into a habit of like beer floats every night and I gained 30 pounds and I became kind of a, a, that'd be horrible, kind of a drunk to be. But that's not good for me either, you know? But if you've really sorted that out and you really on a deep level understands what is truly fulfilling to you and you pursue that, it's a good thing for everybody. The world would love to see you happy if you knew what that meant. The problem is that so many of us don't know what that means. We do a lot of harm looking for what makes us happy. <laughs> Nine o'clock, y'all. Thanks for coming to my nerdy ass TED talk. <laughs> I really wanted to do this one. We hadn't done any, like I hadn't done a, like a direct kind of like teachy talk in a while. I was like, let's do some, let's do some theory. So thanks for doing that with me. I think, I think it's helpful sometimes, just not all the time. Anyway, there's a basket here. There's the link online. We are only 100% donor supported. So if you can help to donate, please do. We recommend 10 to 15%. per sit. Best way to support is become a recurring member on the website. There's also a Venmo thing there too. But if you cannot afford to donate, Please do not. That's our whole system of those who can afford to donate do. We can afford to not worry about those who can't and keep it accessible for everybody. That's always our goal. So thank you everybody doing whatever you can just for being here. Coming up, I can't think of any now.